Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 169 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we begin with news of a major data breach at the UK Labour Party. We then have news of a data breach at celebrity jeweller Graf. And then we travel to South Yorkshire, where South Yorkshire Housing Association has had a data breach. We then travel down the coast in North Norfolk, where the ICO has now concluded its investigation into the documents which were left in a closed nursing home and has now authorised North Norfolk County Council to destroy those documents. And then we travel across to the USA, where Washington Central Unified Union School has had a data breach. And then remaining in the USA, we travel over to California, where Monterey County has a data breach. And then we travel to Canada, where human errors have been identified as the cause of a data breach for the Catholic District School Board of Eastern Ontario. We then travel over to Pakistan, where the National Bank of Pakistan has had a data breach. And then we come back to the UK, where Jill Whitehead has been appointed the CEO of the UK Digital Regulator Forum. We then have news that Facebook has issued a notice that it is going to stop using facial recognition. And then we travel to Belgium, where IAB Europe is expected to be found in breach of GDPR. Then we travel out to Australia, where Clearview AI has been ordered to stop unauthorised facial recognition. We then come back to Europe, where the EU has introduced new legislation to force the manufacturers of wireless devices to improve their security. We then look at what the difference is between cyber insurance and data breach insurance. We then talk about Lockbit and how it could be lurking in your conference room. And then finally this week, we look at the long-term consequences of a data breach. So as always, a mixed collection of articles for you this week. We hope that you find the information in them useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. However, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production, and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. We begin this week with the major news in the UK that there's been a data breach at the UK's Labour Party, one of the UK's two main political parties. What we know so far is that the Labour Party has confirmed that it had a cyber attack on a third-party company which has led to the compromise of its members' data. 
In an email sent to all party members and posted to its website, Labour said it was informed of the cyber incident by an unnamed third-party data processor on October the 29th. Labour said the incident led to a significant quantity of party data being rendered inaccessible on their systems. It's believed to be a ransomware attack on a third-party supplier to the Labour Party, but the Labour Party has yet to confirm this. It's also unclear at the moment on the scale of the breach, because Labour said it was just its current members, but we know from evidence we've seen that ex-members have also received the data breach notification. So it would seem that possibly the data breach affects a far larger number of people than might first be thought. And of course it's important because Labour, as well as holding people's political affiliation, holds financial information on its members who pay an annual monthly subscription. So far, Labour have said that the information includes the information provided to the party by its members, registered and affiliated supporters and other individuals who have provided their information. As I said, we've heard from several ex-members of the Labour Party who've received the email, including one who left the party in 2009. But if we just look at the current data, Labour has approximately 430,000 members. The Labour Party has said that an investigation is underway and that it's also informed the National Crime Agency, the National Cyber Security Centre and the ICO, the Information Commissioner. A spokesperson for the National Crime Agency said the National Crime Agency is leading a criminal investigation into a cyber incident impacting on the Labour Party. We are working closely with partners to mitigate any potential risk and assess the nature of the incident. The ICO has also confirmed that it's actively making inquiries into the incident. The Labour Party has also said that it's working closely with its unnamed third-party supplier to urgently investigate the full nature, circumstances and impact of the incident. It stressed that its own internal data systems were unaffected in the attack. Of course, this is not the first time that a third party has been involved with the Labour Party and had a data breach. Regular listeners of the GDPR Weekly Show remember us talking about Blackboard and how they had a ransomware attack which led to a data breach which also affected the Labour Party. If you want to learn more about the Blackboard data breach, then please refer back to episodes 158, 111, 110, 106, 104, 103, 102 and 101 of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. The second major data breach this week in the UK was just after we went to broadcast last week, and it was that celebrity data was leaked after a ransomware attack on London's draft jewellers. It is understood that the Russia-based Conti ransomware group is demanding tens of millions in cryptocurrency. Graf is a London-based diamond specialist and confirmed there has notified the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, of the breach. As we said, the attack is believed to have been carried out by Tonti, a Russian-based ransomware group that has also been blamed for a recent upturn in attacks across the USA. It's understood that as a result of the draft data breach, a total of 69,000 documents have been leaked on the dark web already, a number which represents just 1% of the total files that Tonti has stolen, so they claim. The list of victims includes high-profile names such as ex-footballers David Beckham and Frank Lampard, former President Donald Trump, actors Tom Hanks and Samuel L. Jackson, and disgraced businessman Sir Philip Green. The ICO said, We have received a report from Graf Diamonds Limited regarding the ransomware attack. We will be contacting the organisation to make further inquiries in relation to the information that has been provided. From information that we've seen, it's believed that 11,000 of the company's customers may be affected, 600 of whom are UK nationals. Information such as client lists, invoices, receipts and credit notes were understood to be included in the hack. 
In some cases, customer names and addresses used for billing and shipping were included, and in other cases, details of what the customer bought and the cost of the items. Samples of these data have been leaked, as we say, online into the dark web. It's understood that Conti is believed to be demanding a sum in tens of millions in order to prevent the further release of customer information. However, Draft has said it has been able to rebuild and restart its systems with no permanent loss of customer data. In a statement, Draft said, Regrettably, we, in common with a number of other businesses, have recently been the target of a sophisticated, though limited, cyber attack by professional and determined criminals. We were alerted to their intrusive activity by our security systems, allowing us to react swiftly and shut down our network. We notified and have been working with relevant law enforcement agencies and the ICO. We have informed those individuals whose personal data was affected and have advised them on the appropriate steps to take. If we receive any further update on this from either DRAF or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Yorkshire now and a Sheffield-based housing association has been hit by a major cyber incident and is unable to say whether personal or bank details have been stolen. South Yorkshire Housing Association says it has hired cyber security specialists to restore systems and investigate after operational disruption owing to a cyber incident which impacted their IT network. It says there's no evidence that personal data has been impacted but warns the probe is still at an early stage. South Yorkshire Housing Association, based in Sheffield City Centre, has nearly 6,000 homes, more than 600 staff, and also has a private sector estate agent called Crucible Homes. Group Chief Executive Tony Stacey has been emailing tenants, former tenants, next to kin, and similar cases for whom we still hold data for regulatory purposes. In an email, he says, We understand people may be concerned about their personal data. The investigation is at an early stage, so we are not yet able to confirm whether any of the data held in our systems was impacted, but at present, no evidence has been identified to suggest it has been impacted. However, it is important to note the investigation is ongoing. He adds, due to their technical nature, these investigations can take some time to complete, but we wanted to inform you of this incident so that you can take precautions while the investigation continues. They then provide a link to Action Fraud for advice. A spokeswoman for South Yorkshire Housing Association said, South Yorkshire Housing Association has recently faced some operational disruption owing to a cyber incident which impacted our IT network. Since we became aware of the incident, we've been working hard alongside external cybersecurity specialists to safely restore our systems and investigate the matter. We are sorry for any inconveniences caused to our customers, employees and partners. The organisation has stopped responding individually to emails or calls about the incident and has set up a dedicated email inbox, customerhelp at cruciblehomes.co.uk. If we receive any update from the Housing Association or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episode 153, we brought you news about documents which have been discovered in a closed care home in North Norfolk. Uh, this week, the ICO confirmed that it has finished its investigation into the breach of data at Pineheath Care Home in High Telling near Holt in Norfolk, and that piles of documents, including paper records which were left laying around, have now been destroyed. A spokesperson for Norfolk County Council confirmed the authority has since been onto the site to collect the documents and they have since been destroyed in line with data protection protocols. The council said it took the unusual step of destroying the records because the care home provider Diamond Care UK Limited has itself now shut down so was not in a position to do so itself. The care home closed suddenly in May 2017 after it was placed in special measures following an inadequate rating in a damning report by the Care Quality Commission. 
An ICO spokesperson said Norfolk County Council made us aware of an incident where personal data was left unsecured by Diamond Care UK Limited at the former Pine Heath Care Home. As Pine Heath has ceased trading, the council confirmed it has secured the data and has arranged its destruction. After considering the information provided, we concluded that no further action was necessary. To America now, and Washington Central Unified Union School District experienced a criminal cybersecurity attack. The school district said that the privacy and security of student and employee staff and related information was a top priority for them and that they are working diligently to deal with this incident. They also said they sincerely apologise for any inconvenience this may cause you. It's understood that on October the 24th this year, the school district learned it was a victim of a cybersecurity attack. The attackers deployed malware causing the encryption of certain school district systems and files and access to required certain documents in their systems that likely contained certain student and employee information. The school district says it promptly took steps to secure their network and engaged a third-party cybersecurity firm to conduct a forensic investigation into the cause and scope of the attack. It's understood that the personal information of affected students compromised in the attack may include name, address, date of birth, certain information in the student's education records and potentially allergy and prescription information in student files. Student social security numbers were not involved in the attack, nor were the debit or credit card details of their parents or guardians. It's understood that the personal information relating to teachers and staff and related individuals compromising the attack may have included name, address, date of birth, health insurance numbers, social security number and in some instances financial account information. At this time, the school district says they have no indication that any student or teacher, staff or related information has been used to commit identity theft or fraud. The school district confirmed they have also notified law enforcement, including the FBI and the Vermont Attorney General's Office. Prior to the attack, the school district had been in the process of moving applications and files to cloud environments to enhance security, which substantially reduced the impact of the incident. In response to the attack and in an effort to prevent future attacks, the school district changed passwords, deployed an endpoint monitoring solution and began the process of updating its virus and malware protections. The school district said that in addition to communicating to the community as promptly as possible, it has also been arranging for ID theft and credit monitoring services to help affected persons mitigate harm. Anyone who is believed they may have been affected should call 866-346-4861 as soon as possible. The help desk is available Monday to Friday from 9am to 5.30pm Eastern Time. The school district asked us to point out that individuals must contact them before the 5th of February 2022 if they want to be included in the free ID theft and credit monitoring services. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. 
We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production. And we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. To California now, and the disclosure on Thursday night that roughly 4,200 Monterey County residents' personal information, including social security numbers, may have been compromised by a breach into the computer network of a non-profit group. The non-profit is the Oakland-based Senator Family of Agencies, which operates the Tinship Centre on River Road in Salinas, which provides mental health services to area youth, foster care adoption, parent education and caregiver support services. Sunita said in a statement on its website that it discovered the breach occurred between August 25th and August 27th, but Monterey County wasn't notified until October 13th, the privacy officer for the Monterey County Health Department said. They did take their sweet time, she said. They had to hold everything, freeze everything, so that took some time. In the Sunita statement, the non-profit emphasised that there's no evidence that there has been actual or attempted misuse of the information, and it is an abundance of caution that it's notifying everyone whose information might have been compromised. Sunita Chief Executive Letitia Gallian was measured in her response to questions declining to address the reasons behind the length of time between discovery and notification. She said the perpetrator was an outside unauthorised individual and that the investigation was turned over to law enforcement. She wouldn't say whether the individual was known to the non-profit organisation. As soon as we found out, we went about identifying impacted individuals, she said. We were victimised by a cyber attack, we're not alone in that. She said, upon discovering the incident, we reset account passwords and implemented additional security measures to further protect information. In addition to the Chinship Centre in Salinas, Sunita oversees providers in Southern and Northern California and Washington State. It has centres in nearly all the Bay Area counties. Sunita is providing potentially impacted individuals with access to credit monitoring and identity protection services and added precautions. Any questions about the incident or how to enrol in credit monitoring and identity protection services can be directed to 855-675-2841, Monday through Friday, from 6am to 6pm Pacific Time. The non-profit recommends that potentially compromised people remain vigilant against identity theft and fraud by reviewing credit reports and account statements for suspicious activity. If we receive any update on this, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Canada now, and specifically Cornwall in Canada, and it's understood that human error was a cause of a data breach. On the evening of Saturday, October 30th, an email with a link to private information was sent from the Catholic District School Board of Eastern Ontario to parents and guardians of St. Joseph Catholic Secondary School students. The email is said to have included a link to a document with personal information about hundreds of students and their parents and guardians, which included names, addresses and contact information. It was sent out as part of the board's communication with families whenever it's notified by public health of a new confirmed COVID-19 case tied to one of its stalls. The message contained information provided by the Eastern Ontario House Unit, leading to some speculation the breach may have been within the House Unit. The House Unit relies on school boards to provide contact information for students and their families so that its contact tracers to ensure those who may have been at risk from a school-related COVID-19 case are informed in different directions. Eastern Ontario House Unit Communications Manager Kareen Hebert confirmed earlier this week the breach did not involve the House Unit. Catholic District School Board of Eastern Ontario Chair Todd Lelond, who is also a trustee for the Cornwall area, confirmed on Thursday that data breach was a result of human error by a school board employee. 
Todd said, on Saturday night, a letter was sent out, and the letter was with regards to COVID-19. Again, we asked our employees on a Saturday evening to put time in to ensure stalls are front and centre and kept up to date on the health situation of our board. Truth be said, a human error was made. The employee feels bad for the situation, but in fairness to the employee, we are asking them to do work on a Saturday evening, said Lalonde. It has been dealt with internally. For parents out there, we apologise. As a board, we greatly regret what happened. Families at St Joseph's Stall were sent a second email once the board became aware of the breach, explaining personal information had been made publicly available through an open link to a text file that hundreds of recipients may have accessed. The link to the file was severed, the file moved to a more secure area, and the board asked any families that may have opened or downloaded the data to erase it. Lalonde said the board would be looking into how to prevent privacy breaches from ever happening in the future, including consideration of hiring more staff members to share workloads. I have to admit, from a board's perspective, we don't take this lightly, he said. We're going to take a long look at it and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again and we do apologise to our many students and parents out there. Lalonde said it doesn't matter what workplace we work in right now, people are overworked and people are tired. This individual is a great employee of our board, none of us live a perfect life and we've asked a lot from our employees. If we hear any more on this, we will just bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Pakistan now, and authorities have detected a cyber attack on the National Bank of Pakistan that disrupted services which were restored on Monday. In a statement, the bank said in the late hours of the October 29th and early morning of October 30th, a cyber attack on the National Bank of Pakistan service was detected which impacted some of our services. At this point, no customer or financial data has been compromised. Remediation efforts are underway using industry-leading subject matter experts, including international resources where required. While currently the National Bank of Pakistan services to its customers are disrupted, we are working to address the breach and confident that essential services have been restored as normal from Monday morning. We are grateful for the understanding of our customers in this unusual situation. Returning to the UK now, and former Google director Jill Whitehead has been appointed CEO of the UK Digital Regulator Forum. The Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum is a new body overseeing the regulation of the UK's digital economy. The forum's members will include the Competition and Markets Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office and Ofcom. The aim of the forum is to ensure that the UK's digital landscape is regulated effectively, efficiently and coherently. It's understood that Jill Whitehead is due to take up her post from the 15th of November. Prior to being appointed CEO of the new forum, Whitehead had been the Senior Director of Market Insight and Client Solutions and Analytics at Google for four years, having left that company in 2020. Her role included leading Google's specialist teams in data science, analytics, measurement and user experience. Over the span of her 23-year career, she's also worked for the Bank of England, Deloitte's, the BBC Channel 4, Informa and the British Olympic Association. Commenting on the announcement, Ofcom Chief Executive Dame Melanie Dawes said that she is delighted to have Jill on board as the Forum's Chief Executive. She said her expertise and insight will be invaluable as we shape the regulated landscape for the UK's digital economy. This will be a pivotal role in bringing us together to tackle our shared challenges and secure a safer online for everyone, she added. A spokesman for the UK Information Commissioner said the Forum will benefit from her experience and we are looking forward to working with her and all the regulators involved to create a clear approach. In a statement, Whitehead said that she looks forward to building a coherent and coordinated approach to digital regulation that is good for people using online services and for business and for innovation. 
We're at a critical juncture in establishing a digital regulatory framework that ensures UK citizens can benefit from the best that technology has to offer, whilst being protected from the worst, she said. Here at the GDPR Weekly Show, we wish Jill Whitehead all the best in her new role and look forward to having the opportunity to interview her in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production, and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. (laughs) Returning to the UK now, and former Google director Jill Whitehead has been appointed CEO of the UK Digital Regulator Forum. The Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum is a new body overseeing the regulation of the UK's digital economy. The forum's members will include the Competition and Markets Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office and Ofcom. The aim of the forum is to ensure that the UK's digital landscape is regulated effectively, efficiently and coherently. It's understood that Jill Whitehead is due to take up her post from the 15th of November. Prior to being appointed CEO of the new forum, Whitehead had been the Senior Director of Market Insight and Client Solutions and Analytics at Google for four years, having left that company in 2020. Her role included leading Google's specialist teams in data science, analytics, measurement and user experience. Over the span of her 23-year career, she's also worked for the Bank of England, Deloitte, the BBC Channel 4, Informa and the British Olympic Association. Commenting on the announcement, Ofcom Chief Executive, Dame Melanie Dawes said that she is delighted to have Jill on board as the forum's chief executive. She said her expertise and insight will be invaluable as we shape the regulated landscape for the UK's digital economy. This will be a pivotal role in bringing us together to tackle our shared challenges and secure a safer online for everyone, she added. A spokesman for the UK Information Commissioner said the forum will benefit from her experience and we are looking forward to working with her and all the regulators involved to create a clear approach. In a statement, Whitehead said that she looks forward to building a coherent and coordinated approach to digital regulation that is good for people using online services and for business and for innovation. We're at a critical juncture in establishing a digital regulatory framework that ensures UK citizens can benefit from the best that technology has to offer, whilst being protected from the worst, she said. Here at the GDPR Weekly Show, we wish Jill Whitehead all the best in her new role and look forward to having the opportunity to interview her in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to 
GDPR Made Simple club, and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR weekly show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. Facebook has announced that it's shutting down its controversial facial recognition system. The company, which recently rebranded to Meta, also said it would be deleting all users' facial templates that's been collected in over a decade of the facial recognition system being in use. The move will mark the end of website functionality such as automatic user detection in images and automatic alt text, automatically generated descriptions of images which are used by visually impaired users that currently identify people in around 4% of all the photos on the site. And it's that date for the company's closing of the technology has not been announced, but Facebook said the programme will end in the coming weeks. Acknowledging the situation as a complex social issue, Facebook said it wants to move away from the broad identification approach it previously used with its facial recognition tech and move closer towards focusing on narrower forms of personal identification. Such examples include accessing locked accounts, personal devices and verifying identity in the financial product. It added that private, on-device uses of the technology may be a more adequate way of deploying it since there will be no communication of biometric data between the device and an external server. Those who have opted in for facial recognition on Facebook, more than a third of Facebook users, will no longer be automatically identified and their face data will be removed from records. Facebook, or Meta as they're now called, believe that this will account for more than a billion facial templates being deleted. Consulting with outside experts along the way, Facebook will continue to work on facial recognition technology because it believes in its power to be a force for good in areas such as identity verification and prevention of fraud, though it said the positives have to be considered against the potential drawbacks. Jerome Pazenti, Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at Facebook, in a blog post said, The many specific instances where facial recognition can be helpful need to be weighed against growing concerns about the use of the technology as a whole. There are many concerns about the place of facial recognition technology in society and regulators are still in the process of providing a clear set of rules governing its use. Amid this ongoing uncertainty, we believe that limiting the use of facial recognition to a narrow set of user cases is appropriate. This includes services that help people gain access to a locked account, verify their identity of financial products or unlock a personal device, he said. There are places where facial recognition is both broadly valuable to people and socially acceptable when deployed with care. While we will continue working on use cases like these, we will ensure that people have transparency and control over whether they are automatically recognised. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember us talking about the IAB and the IAB in Europe and its various tussles it has had with... GDPR and with the European regulators. If you want to follow the history of this, please do refer back to episodes 149, 147, 113, 
74, 55, 54, 41, 30, 11 and 9 of the GDPR Weekly Show. So as you can see, it has been dragging on for quite some time. Well, this week, the IAB Europe have announced that they are expecting to be found to be in breach of GDPR. It's now a year since the IAB Europe self-styled transparency and consent framework was found to fail in, to comply with GDPR principles of transparency, fairness and accountability and the lawfulness of processing in a preliminary report by the Investment Data Division of the Belgian Data Protection Authority. The complaint then moved to the litigation chamber of the Data Protection Authority and a whole year has now passed without a decision being issued in keeping with the glacial pace of privacy enforcement against ad tech in the EU. But it's understood that the authority is now in the process of finalising a draft ruling and the verdict it's expecting is that TCF breaches GDPR. It will also find that IAB Europe itself is in breach. The online advertising industry body looks to be seeking to get ahead of a nuclear finding of non-compliance, writing that the Data Protection Authority will apparently identify infringements of GDPR by IAB Europe, while simultaneously implying the breach finding may not itself be fixed because other EU Data Protection Authorities still need to weigh in on the decision as part of GDPR's standard cooperation procedure. The preemptive statement by the IAB very much looks like the IAB Europe trying to both muddy the waters and bury bad news and therefore calm the nerves of the tracking industry ahead of looming headlines that a flagship tool is unlawful. In terms of timing, a final verdict on the investigation is still likely to be months away and may not emerge till deep into 2022. And then of course it's almost inevitable that the IAB will appeal. In the short term, the IAB says it expects a draft ruling to be shared by Belgium with other EU data protection authorities in the next two to three weeks, at which point they get 30 days to review it and potentially any objections. If the data protection authorities don't agree with the lead authorities' finding and can't agree amongst themselves, the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, may need to step in and make a binding decision. As an example of this previously in the cross-border case against WhatsApp, which led to a $267 million fine. Complainants against the IAB Europe and TCF, meanwhile, have said that they've not seen nor heard any details of a draft ruling by the Data Protection Authority. One of the complainants, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, Johnny Ryan, quickly posted a press statement of his own in which he said, We have won. The online advertising industry and its trade body, IAB Europe, have been found to have been deprived hundreds of millions of Europeans of their fundamental rights. IAB Europe designed the misleading consent pop-ups that feature in almost all 80% plus of European websites and apps. That system is known as IAB Europe's Transparency and Consent Framework. These pop-ups purport to give people control over how their data is used by the online advertising industry, but in fact it doesn't matter what people click. The news that a ruling may be forthcoming comes at an interesting time for the ad tracking industry, as it's known there are moves afoot in the European Parliament to push for an outright ban on behavioural advertising to be incorporated into oncoming pan-EU regulations for digital services. Now, of course, that's quite an interesting take, because if that does happen, that is going to put EU GDPR at odds with UK GDPR, which at the moment still allows behavioural advertising. As far as we know, there are no plans currently in the UK Parliament to reverse that. Indeed, it's fair to say that the current consultation, which is being carried out by the UK government, actually indicates the opposite, that they're going to get looser on ad tracking rather than tighter. So will this tour fall out where between the EU and the UK? Quite possibly. It's going to make for an interesting few months ahead, that's for sure. 
and we will of course always bring you up-to-date news on it here on GDPR Weekly Show. It's understood that the draft ruling by the Belgian Data Protection Authority will find that the IAB Europe is a data controller for TCF TC strings, also known as the digital signals created on websites to capture data subjects' choices about the posting of their personal data for digital advertising, content and measurement. It will also find that the IAB Europe is a joint controller for TC strings that are used in open RTB, real-time bidding, meaning the industry body will have a string of risky new responsibilities attached to the data processing around programmatic behavioural advertising, with legal liability and the risk of big fines if they fail to live up to requirements in GDPR such as privacy by design and default, consent that's specific, informed and freely given, and appropriate security wrapping around people's data. Johnny Ryan also addressed this issue, saying, For almost four years, websites and apps have plagued Europeans with the consent spam, but our evidence reveals that IAB Europe knew that conventional tracking-based advertising was incompatible with consent under GDPR before it launched the current system. This is because the primary tracking-based ad system called Real-Time Bidding broadcasts internet users' behaviour and real-world locations to thousands of companies billions of times a day. Real-time bidding is the biggest data breach ever recorded. There is no way to protect data in this free-for-all. In proceedings initiated by a group of complainants coordinated by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the Belgian Data Protection Authority is close to adopting a draft decision that will find IAB Europe its consent pop-up system infringes GDPR, vindicating our arguments over several years. Johnny Ryan went on to say Google and the entire tracking industry relies on IAB Europe's consent system, which will now be found to be illegal. IAB Europe created a fake consent system that spammed everyone every day and served no purpose other than to give a thin legal cover to the massive data breach in the heart of online advertising. We hope the decision by the Belgian Data Protection Authority will finally force the online advertising industry to reform. Another complaint in the case, Jeff Uslis, a researcher in data privacy at the University of Amsterdam, suggests that IAB Europe's statement is an attempt to sow doubt amongst other EU data protection authorities and told its claim that identification codes used for targeting advertising weren't personal data as preposterous. He also described the Belgian finding as only the very start of the process, as he sees it, adding we've come a long way already, but regardless this will still take a while. A spokeswoman for IAB Europe claimed it has only been informed about the headline findings of the draft ruling. She did confirm that this information had come from the Belgian Data Protection Authority. Obviously, this story is going to run and run, and doubtless we will be bringing you updates in future weeks here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Australia now, and Clearview AI has been ordered to cease data scraping. A joint investigation between the UK and Australian Information Commissioners has found that Clearview breached Australians' privacy. The investigation by the two information commissioners found that Clearview AI breached the Australian Privacy Act 1988 by collecting Australian sensitive information without their consent, collecting personal information by unfair means, and by not taking reasonable steps to notify the individuals over collection of personal information. It also found that the company didn't take reasonable steps to ensure personal information it disclosed was accurate or implement practices, procedures and systems to ensure compliance with the Australian privacy principles. The outcome orders Clearview AI to cease collecting facial images and biometric templates from individuals in Australia and to destroy the existing images and templates selected from the country. 
Clearly, the AI's facial recognition tool includes a database of over 3 billion images straight from social media platforms and other publicly available websites. The tool allows users to upload a photo of an individual's face and find other facial images of that person gleaned from the internet. It then links to where the photos appeared for identification purposes. The Australian Information Commissioner said when Australians use social media or professional networking sites, they don't expect their facial images to be collected without their consent by a commercial entity to create biometric templates for completely unrelated identification purposes. The indiscriminate scraping of people's facial images, only a fraction of whom would ever be connected with law enforcement, may adversely affect the personal freedoms of all Australians and perceive themselves to be under surveillance. The UK ICO said that as the digital world is international, the regulatory work must be international too, particularly where regulators are looking to anticipate, interpret and influence developments in tech for the global good. That doesn't mean sharing the same laws or approaches, but on finding ways for our different approaches to work side by side and coordinate and share the regulatory challenge where technologies impact our citizens across borders. They went on to say, this helps minimise the burden on data protection authorities and those they regulate. That is what we were able to achieve in this case, and the result is an investigation that will protect consumers in both the UK and Australia. It's understood that the UK ICO is considering its next steps and any form of regulatory action that may be appropriate under UK data protection laws. Clearview AI also provided trials of facial recognition tools to Australian police forces between October 2019 and March 2020. The purpose was to conduct searches in facial images of individuals located in the country. The Australian Information Commissioner is currently finalising an investigation into this trial and whether the police complied with requirements under the Australian Government Agency's Privacy Code to assess and mitigate privacy risks. Clearview AI has previously argued that the information it handled was not personal information and as it was based in the US it was not within the Privacy Act's jurisdiction. Clearview also claimed it stopped offering services to Australian law enforcement shortly after the Australian Information Commissioner's investigation began. However, the Australian Information Commissioner said they were satisfied that the company was required to comply with Australian privacy law and the information it handled was covered by its Privacy Act. Clearview AI has said it intends to appeal against the Commissioner's decision, adding that not only has the decision missed the mark on the manner of the company's way of operating, but also lacks jurisdiction. We only collect public data from the open internet and comply with all standards of privacy and law, the CEO of Clearview AI said. I respect the time and effort the Australian officials spent evaluating aspects of the technology I built. But I'm disheartened by the misinterpretation of its value to society. I look forward to engaging in conversation with leaders and lawmakers to further discuss the privacy issues so the true nature of Clearview AI's technology, which has proven so essential to law enforcement, can continue to make communities safe. This isn't the first time that Clearview AI has come up against privacy laws. In June this year, Canada's privacy regulator found that the Canadian police force broke the law when using Clearview AI's software. Clearview was found to have violated Canada's federal private sector privacy laws by creating a database of over 3 billion images straight from the internet without users' consent. The European Commission has announced plans to introduce new rules requiring device manufacturers to embed tougher cyber security measures when designing new wireless devices. The amendment to the Radio Equipment Directive will cover all wireless devices including mobile phones, smartwatches, tablets, fitness trackers and any other electronic device that intentionally transmits and or emits radio waves for the purpose of communication. By embedding cyber security measures from the ground up, the Commission hopes this will enhance consumer privacy, improve the resilience of communication networks and reduce the risk of fraud. Marking a significant step in the European Commission's legislative procedure, the proposed Act was officially adopted on Friday, successfully clearing both the European Council and the European Parliament. 
The Adopted Act, which states the form of regulation, will undergo a two-month period of scrutiny before being officially enacted. After this time, manufacturers will be afforded a 30-month transition period, during which time they must make changes to comply with the new legal requirements. It will be directly applicable in all member states without the need to transposition into domestic legislation. Going forward, new wireless devices will need to have features to guarantee the protection of personal data and the protection of children's rights. Devices such as baby monitors will need to implement new compliant measures that prevent unauthorised access or transmission of personal data. There are a number of device types that are excluded. These include motor vehicles, electronic road toll systems, equipment to control unmanned aircraft remotely, i.e. drones, and non-airborne specific radio equipment that may be installed on aircraft. The European Commission said the cybersecurity of these devices already covered adequately by existing legislation. From a network resilience perspective, devices must also have features that specifically prevent the possibility devices could be used to disrupt websites or other web services. Stronger user authentication when it comes to making electronic payments is also stipulated in the new Act, which it hopes will minimise the risk of fraud. Commissioner for the Internal Market, Thierry Breton, said, Cyber threats evolve fast, they are increasingly complex and adaptable. With the requirements we are introducing today, we will greatly improve the security of a broad range of products and strengthen our resilience against cyber threats in line with our digital ambitions in Europe. This is a significant step in establishing a comprehensive set of common European cyber security standards for products, including connected objects and devices brought to our market. While the European Commission said the new requirements will be formulated in general terms as objectives to be achieved, rather than specific protocols or measures applied to each device, it will launch a standardisation request to the European Standardisation Organisation in order to develop harmonised standards in support of this piece of legislation. To demonstrate compliance, manufacturers will have a choice of either submitting a self-assessment or they can rely on a third-party assessment performed by an independent inspection body. Some corners of the industry have claimed the introduction of the rules aren't focused on the right areas, saying secure by design principles should be applied to component manufacturers so equipment manufacturers, OEMs, can produce secure devices by default. The EU's Radio Equipment Directive comes after President von der Leyen announced in September plans to introduce the Cyber Resilience Act, which arrangement measures on a broader set of electronic devices covering the entirety of their life cycle. When making her annual State of the Union speech in the European Parliament back in September this year, von der Leyen said, We cannot talk about defence without talking about cyber. If everything is connected, everything can be hacked. Given that resources are scarce, we have to bundle our forces and we should not just be satisfied to address the cyber threat but also strive to become a leader in cyber security. It should be here in Europe where cyber defence tools are developed. This is why we need a European cyber defence policy, including legislation on common standards under a European Cyber Resilience Act. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A question which we've been asked several times on our helpline is what's the difference between cyber insurance and data breach insurance? Let's first just qualify this by saying to us we're GDPR specialists and not insurance brokers, so this is our understanding of the difference, but you'd be wise to check with your broker if, as a result of this, you think you might have the wrong insurance for your business. Cyber insurance and data breach insurance are types of business insurance that sound like they might be the same, but they actually have distinct differences. If your business suffers a data breach, both insurance types will cover the primary financial interest, called first-party coverage, stemming from the exposed data, but only cyber insurance would provide legal protection called third-party coverage. In other words, 
Data breach insurance covers the costs directly attributed to a data breach, such as lost revenue and credit monitoring, while cyber insurance also pays legal fees and any regulatory fines that are assessed against you, so i.e. any fines from the ICO here in the UK. The other difference is that data breach insurance also covers you for losses that don't involve a computer. So, for example, if someone infiltrates the records room of your office and obtains protected information, cyber insurance wouldn't cover that because it's not cyber data, but data breach insurance would. So to expand on that a little more, cyber liability insurance covers two primary elements, first-party claims and third-party claims. It covers losses associated with personally identifiable information, hacks, as well as business interruption caused by nefarious parties. So some of the first-party claims that cyber insurance covers are investigatory costs, repairs to damaged or lost or stolen equipment, lost revenue, consumer notification costs, consumer credit monitoring costs, and, in extreme cases, a ransom paid to the hacker to restore files. It would also cover legal fees, settlements and court judgments, and incurred regulatory fines. By contrast, data breach insurance would cover all those same first-party claims, but also from third-party claims, such as consumer notification costs, consumer credit monitoring costs, damage control from a public relations firm, and extortion coverage. It's important to understand, though, that in addition to these, you still need your public liability and professional liability insurance because what neither of them will cover is bodily injury or damage to your property, i.e. not the computers, but damage to your doors, windows, whatever. They won't cover employee harassment, discrimination or wrongful termination, and they won't cover professional mistakes or omissions. You need professional liability insurance for that. Things that either type of insurance are likely to assume or at least insist on you having are making sure that you keep your physical files locked away in case of data breach insurance, making sure your antivirus and anti-malware software is up to date, making sure your employees have had up-to-date training in GDPR and if you need help with that of course you can always contact us via the contact details that are coming up at the end of this article, that you're using good security protocols that you have a business recovery or disaster recovery plan, and that your data is backed up. Now, most of those, of course, I would hope that you have anyway, but just be aware those are the sort of things that you're going to need in place. Otherwise, whichever insurance you have, your claims are unlikely to be successful. So I hope that's useful. As always, of course, if you have got any queries, please don't hesitate to contact us, either using the details that are coming up at the end of this article, or just email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com, and one of our specialists will gladly help you. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. You've probably heard the term software as a service. Indeed, maybe you already use some systems which are under the software as a service model. What you might not have heard of is ransomware as a service. Use the same basic principle as software as a service, that it's in the cloud, people subscribe to it, and then they can use it. But in this case, instead of being useful software, it's ransomware. And perhaps one of the best-known Examples of this is a program called Lockbit. Lockbit was first released in September 2019. It's a unique type of ransomware offered as a service and it can spread on its own on local networks very quickly. Cyber fraudsters distributing Lockbit ransomware began by looking for insiders in various corporations and striving to build business relationships with them. Targeted employees were then paid for their help in breaking through the corporate security perimeter. 
They demand less money from the victims compared to other ransomware gangs. The way it works is the group then shares part of the ransom, sometimes as much as 70-80%, with the malicious insider, i.e. one of your own staff. It's known that the Lockbit group recently successfully encrypted the information systems of Merseyrail, the UK rail network in Liverpool. Version 2 of Lockbit has just been released, and it's got a couple of features which really do make it quite dangerous if it gets onto your network. The first is that it automates Windows domain encryption using Active Directory group policies. Lockbit enforces privileges and then creates a new group policy at the domain controller level. After that, the new rules apply to all devices on the network. But perhaps most worryingly, it also has a new feature called Print Bomb. What this means is that after successfully infecting your network, all your printers suddenly start printing ransom messages. As a result, many people working for your company, as well as of course, anyone visiting your company, can learn about the attack, which of course can be very embarrassing. So rather than ransomware coming in through your firewall, through coming in from outside your organisation, this is actually done by criminals targeting someone inside your organisation and getting them to install the ransomware for them. Typically, this will be done by giving them a USB stick, which they bring into your office. They put the USB stick into a laptop or any other computer that's connected to your network. The ransomware installs itself. It's then on your network. When your network gets taken over by the ransomware, then they ask for a ransom. You pay the ransom, and your malicious employee gets his or her share of the ransom. It's known that a number of recent cases that this software has been installed onto somebody's network by using the USB port on a laptop that's connected to the network that's in one of your conference rooms. Because typically, even if you have every other laptop and machine locked down not to use USB keys, the one in the conference room will allow USB keys. So if someone arrives from outside your organisation and says, oh, I've got my presentation on a stick, can I plug it in and, and show it to you? You just say yes, they plug it in, and in fact, then that is fine, probably, because it's probably not them bringing the malware in. But one of your employees who knows that that happens does have malware on a stick, and when someone's not watching, they nip into the conference room, plug the stick into the computer, only takes a few moments, and then wham, bang, you've got the malware on your network. Now, hopefully, you have good network detection they will detect that, but you may not have. So just be careful. And as a short-term measure, lock down those USB ports on any laptop that are in your conference room. Don't allow a visitor bringing a laptop in to connect their laptop to your network in the conference room. And you'll do as much as you reasonably can, really, to try and keep this new form of malware out of your system. We sometimes get asked, OK, we listen to your podcast and we hear about all these data breaches and we understand the short-term hit but what's the long-term hit to a company or an organization of having a data breach well we've identified a number of factors the first is is that having a data breach will almost certainly cause rows in your boardroom your other directors particularly your ceo and your chief financial officer will probably round on the chief information officer whoever's responsible for your it systems saying to them that it's their fault but of course, outsiders may well hold the chief exec at fault. So it's fair to say that a data breach will put your company leadership in the spotlight and not in a good way. You could, for instance, get the situation where the CEO 
thinks the best solution is simply to throw money at the problem and maybe offer great discounts to customers or spend millions on a marketing campaign, whilst your person in charge of the information systems might think the best course of action is telling the customers the truth about what happened. There's no easy answer to that, of course, and there's no right answer to that. It's for you to work out in your own organisation, but be prepared for some bordering battles if you have a major data breach. The next thing that can happen is that you get poisoned search results on your corporate brand, because someone searching on Google for your company name, instead of finding you and all the great things that you do, just finds news article after news article after news article about the data breach that happened. And that, of course, can have a negative impact on those people looking at your business. Particularly if they then maybe go on social media and perhaps there they see lots of negative messages about your data breach. You know, that can last for quite some time because social media, in a way, is less of a worry because a post on Facebook is gone in a few hours. A post on Instagram is gone in a couple of days. A post on LinkedIn is probably gone in a week. What isn't gone are any articles on news sites or websites or where somebody's blogged about it. They last perhaps forever. And so, yes, when you have a data breach, of course you want to manage your social media. Yes, of course you do. That's the immediate aim. But do think about the long term as well. That You might have a publication with super rankings in Google, ranking far higher than you ever can. And when people do a search, it's that that comes up under your company name rather than your website. As a result of that reputational damage, of course, you might also suffer a loss of sales after a data breach. And that might not just be new customers, that might be existing customers who've now lost trust in your business, so they drift off somewhere else. You could also have some unexpected expenses after a data breach, and that's why we talked earlier about cyber security and data breach security, so you can try and cover those additional costs. And then finally, you might just find it more difficult to recruit people after you've had a data breach. Again, particularly if your data breaches come up first when people search your company name in Google. So although people always have a tendency, and we notice this when we talk to people who have been unfortunate enough to suffer a data breach, that they concentrate on the penalty they think they may or may not get from the Information Commission or whoever the Data Protection Authority is in your country. Actually, that's probably the least of your worries. You've got all these other long-term factors you need to take into account. So, you know, don't just think that data breach is a one-day event and once it's happened, people forget about it. It doesn't work like that. It's a long-term event and that's why it's important that you put the time and effort into trying to minimise the chance of you having a data breach and that's why good GDPR training, such as that provided by ourselves, is so important. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Until next time, bye-bye.